Good morning, Watermark. This morning we are in Acts chapter eight. I'm glad you could join us. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a haircut and some time out. I, I miss you guys and I can't wait to see you all. And um, pray for us as we're praying for you, as we all sort of work together to figure out the steps forward, what to do and what not to. Um, today we're talking about persecution, but not in the way that you might be thinking we're, that we're going to talk about this. So um, yeah, let me open up today with a word of prayer. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God to speak to us and be present with us, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and gather in this interesting way, and we, uh, we ask that you would speak to us, encourage us, give us what we need. Um, give us a picture in our minds of what it was like for these ancient followers of you for the things that they went through. Somehow draw parallels to our day. Encourage us with their words, with your words, with their actions and with your actions. Let our lives become a part of the grand play, the grand theatrical performance of the cross. Thank you, God. In your name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Um, let me read today's passage for you. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. It's talking about Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were gathered throughout, uh, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who, he uh, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he had said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Okay, so some of this we're going to cover next week. Um, in our last passage, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen has been put to death. Um, he stood trial. Uh, and he's basically lynched by a mob of angry people who didn't even wait for the authorities to do an inquiry. Um, he never stood trial before the Roman authorities. This was illegal, but they did it anyways. Um, and with the killing of Stephen, there's this moment in the passage where the camera, in, at the end of chapter 7, if you picture this thing like, like, like a movie playing out, the camera sort of pans to a particular religious man whose name is Saul, and he becomes the centerpiece uh, eventually, of the book of Acts, really the second half of it. Um, and this guy, he's he's going to become a man named Paul, the apostle, and he's going to wage um, the really the first widespread persecution of the Christians in the ancient world. This is the first time that their persecution sort of breaks wide open, and they begin to be rounded up and killed. Saul drags men and women and children out of their houses. He puts them to death. He arrests them. He throws them in prison. Um, and there's some interesting things, details that we have here. Verse 22... Um, uh, I'm sorry, verse, um, verse, verse two and three tell us that, that um, while Stephen is being buried, it talks about these godly men who bring Stephen's body and they are burying him and they're mourning over his death while they're burying Stephen. That it says, while he does this, Saul begins to destroy the church. Um, Saul begins to focus not, no longer on the apostles, the leadership in the church, but on the people themselves, the people attending the services. Um, and verse one, we read this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, 
and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So that's important because it tells us that the people had to run for their lives, not the church leadership. The church leadership stayed and stood strong. Um, verse three, it says, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So there's an interesting result of the persecution. What happens is the Christians, as they scatter, they take this message to places it would not have gone had they not been scattered. They take the gospel to these other communities, um, Jewish communities and Samaritan communities, who uh, Samaritans were sort of a cousin of the Jewish people, although most of the time they were disavowed by the Jewish people. We'll talk about maybe about that uh, next week. Um, and everywhere they go, these churches begin to spring up. And this wouldn't have happened if there had not been persecution by this man Saul of these Christians. Had they never been scattered, had they never been forced to run for their lives uh, and sort of the diaspora, the scattering of the Christians, had this never happened, um, this persecution, um, if, if this had never happened, there, there never would have been sort of this catalyst for like this um, huge growth of the church it started to go really fast in places that never would have grown otherwise. Um, and so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about the strengths of some of the people that were persecuted in the ancient world, some of the, the strengths of the Christians, um, of the early church fathers. I want to tell some of their stories. And then I want to pan the camera from them to us today. Um, and I want to make some observations. Some of them I already made this week on social media, on, on Facebook and stuff. Um, but I'm going to even expand on those. Um, so it has always been that when the church suffers persecution, just like in Acts chapter 8, it has always been that when it suffers persecution, it grows faster and stronger than at times of peace. Um, the Romans originally began persecuting the, the, the church um, because they believed it would be like this unflattering advertisement of Christianity. Look, like if you become a Christian, here's what's going to happen to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they they originally believed that the plan was that like basically if we start killing the Christians and publicly killing them for everyone to see, then we can make sort of a shame of them. We can create sort of a fear about becoming one of them, and then people will no longer want to be Christians if we will just publicly execute them for everyone to see. Uh, it's sort of an unflattering advertisement. To all those who might be thinking, I, I think I'd, I'm interested in what they're doing. It, it looks interesting. Um, this group of people who are throwing off all the weights of honor and privilege and riches and wealth in the world and gathering together in this diverse community of, of high and low status, treating each other as equals under this other king. This seems interesting. I'm interested in what they're doing. Um, but as we know, this persecution, it, it didn't work when Rome tried it. Uh, it didn't work because... A lot of the people who ended up watching these Christians get killed uh, were inspired by these Christians and what they were going through, and they ended up becoming Christians themselves. And they ended up marveling at anyone who would suffer such things and basically wondering what incredible power that this faith must contain that people would die for it. Because most people don't have things in their life, ideals that they want to live by. Most people don't have ideals that, that they're living by that they would die for. Most people... Um, when certain things that they really like and that they're involved with in their life, if you were to threaten them with death, they would say, okay, I don't need that thing. I don't need to be a part of the yacht club. That's fine. I don't, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll give up Fortnite. That's cool. Like I don't, 
most people, things that they're really like into and they sort of, they find identity in, they would give up in the face of persecution, but the Christians never did. And this is inspiring for the people who are watching, watching. And they marveled at these people as they publicly died. In fact, the public martyrdom of the Christian is, is, is responsible for creating some of the greatest Christian thinkers of the early church that we have. Some of the greatest ancient Christian writings from the first three centuries that we have come from these people who were publicly executed. And it wasn't until they were executed that their writings actually gained notoriety. Uh, there's, um, let, me, let me tell you a few of them. There's this guy, Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, it's a, it's today, Lyon is, is in France. Um, he was heavily influenced by this famous martyr named Polycarp. Polycarp was actually a disciple of John, of, of um, the one who likely wrote the book of, um, of Revelation. Uh, Polycarp had been ordained by John, and then Irenaeus apparently was heavily influenced by and personally knew Polycarp. Um, and he served... Uh, during the persecution of what is now France, and he is he is believed to have been martyred somewhere near the near the turn of the third century, and the reason he became a follower of Jesus and a minister in the church is because he saw Polycarp's martyrdom, because he saw him die, and it inspired him. Um, and people still today read his writings. There's another man named Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian started off as this well-educated, really devout citizen of Rome. But eventually, he, he became a Christian when he watched pers uh, Christians being persecuted publicly. And he was really impressed with their courage, their resolve. Uh, he watched Christians being fed to lions and ripped apart and burned alive in broad daylight. Um, and as he watched this, he could not help but be moved and inspired by them, by their faith. He's like, and he's asking these questions to himself. What do they have that I don't have? What is it about this Christian faith, this message of Jesus, that would inspire these people to hold on to it this tightly? And as he studied it, he ended up becoming a follower of Jesus himself and one of the, one of the greatest church fathers that we had. Um, long after his conversion, he, here's what he wrote. He said, the more we are mown down by you, the more numerous we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And he was the first to admit that like when you kill Christians, their blood flows into the ground and plants more churches. This is all that you're doing, is making more followers of Jesus. Origin. One of my favorite church fathers, fascinating guy, um, one of the most influential figures in ancient Christianity. Um, when he was little, he was like 17 years old, uh, he saw his father arrested and martyred uh, by the, the, the Roman Empire. And while his father is in prison, he writes his father a letter urging him to stand firm in the face of the persecution that he was enduring. Um, he urged him, don't forsake your faith. Um, and don't fear for me and, and, your, and mom, like your, your wife, don't fear for us, for what you were leaving behind. Instead, hold on to your faith. Don't give it up for us. And he pleaded with his father to hold on to his faith. Um, and his father was murdered for it. And as Origen grew, his greatest desire that he would write about was to suffer the martyrdom that his father suffered so that many uh, many people would be inspired by his death as well. Um, he never was martyred, um, but he was arrested and tortured. He survived a lot of torture at the hands of the Romans for his faith. And the torture was actually so severe that it left him scarred, broken. He was unable to even continue his work. Um, it left his mind sort of um, unable to function as well as it did before. But he had a lot of disciples and his courageous example uh, of, of 
faithful and peaceful endurance of the evils of these violent Romans, it was passed on to his students. And, and one of his students is a man named um, Dionysius of Alexandria and a student of Origen. Um, and he was so inspired by the faith of Origen during his suffering and persecution that when in his own city, when a particularly violent persecution broke out in his own city, um, he went home and he sat in his house and he prayed and he awaited his arrest by the, by the Roman centurions to come and arrest him and have him killed. But the soldiers never found him. They searched for days and days and days, but it never actually dawned on him, on them that he would be at his house waiting to be arrested. And so they never even checked his house where he was just sitting in his house awaiting to be arrested. They assumed like everyone else that he would be running for his life, but he wasn't. And had they found him, um, they could have stopped his work, but they couldn't. Um, and lastly, there's a man named Ignatius of Antioch. Um, Ignatius is fascinating. Every writing that we have of Ignatius comes to us from prison. Um, everything that we have of his, the information about his life and, and the writings from his own hands come to us from captivity while he was awaiting his execution. Um, he was arrested during the persecution of, of the city of Antioch, and then he was sent to Rome, west. And as he's traveling to Rome under the guard of 10 soldiers, as he's traveling and he's imprisoned, he's writing letters and he's writing theology and he's writing pleadings with the church. And as they sailed west, he's, he's frequently visited by these other Christians who know that he's being taken to Rome. And Christians from everywhere are coming to visit him and see him. And as they come and see him, he always urges them, hey, uh, when you see me, don't intervene. Do not be violent. We cannot be violent people because Christ wasn't violent. This is not who God is, and this is not who God wants us to be. So instead, he encourages them to allow him, himself, to be poured out. He says this, poured out as a libation to God while an altar is at hand. He says, as long as the altar is built, I will allow myself to be broken and poured out. And he knew he writes about how he knew that once he was dead, the Christians would give him more of an ear than they ever had. He, he knew that while he was alive, his words didn't hold as much meaning as once he was, once he was killed. Um, because of the words of the martyr, they tend to carry more weight than the words of regular men and women. Somehow they do. Uh, he knew that he must use this opportunity to, to edify and instruct the churches. But here's the thing. These stories, as inspiring as they may be, and they are incredibly inspiring, like I read them and I'm in awe of these, of these, of these men and women who, who suffered the way that they did because of their faith, knowing that I'll probably never have to face that. Um, but while these stories are really inspiring, they can also be terrifying and disheartening. And I understand that. Um, because not all of us are that strong. And we oftentimes wonder if we are that strong. I wonder if I'm that strong. Um, again, verse one of, Luke, of Acts chapter eight, it says, all except the apostles were scattered. All the Christians abandoned them in the same way. This is again, sort of uh, the, the disciples, the apostles become Jesus. Their life is replaying the theatrical performance of Christ in the same way that Christ was abandoned in the garden when he was being arrested. The apostles are abandoned by their church. They now take the place of Christ in the midst of the people. And the people scatter and the apostles stay. Okay. 
and the writing sort of begs you to ask the question, who are you in the story? Are you the Christ figure like the apostles were? Or are you the terrified follower of Christ who believes but still requires help in all the places that we don't believe, that we don't trust? It's very normal. Very normal. Um, the leaders are bold and strong. They knew Jesus personally. I mean, it's kind of cheating, right? Like, well, you knew Jesus. We didn't. The rest of the people were terrified, and they ran for their lives. And if we're being honest about this, I think most of us would be scattered. We wouldn't be bold, and we wouldn't have stayed. And what do we do with that? How do we make peace with our fragile faith? How do we face God? How do we speak to God? How do we claim the name of Christ? Uh, with the full knowledge that, that we are not giants, but we are scared peasants trying to follow Christ the best we can, trying to live out the life of Christ for the world around us, but unable to enter into a lot of the persecution that Jesus did. Unable to be bold as Jesus was. I think to get a grasp on how we are to think about this, I think we need to look at Jesus' words on persecution. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are, the per blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, oftentimes when we read Jesus' words about persecution, we read this like some kind of formula, like the blessing is attached to an act. So if you are persecuted, you will then be blessed. Um, so there's a blessing to be attained, and the only way to attain it is to accomplish the task. And when we do this, when we read it this way, essentially, we are taking something, <coughs> excuse me, that was meant to be a blessing, a gift from above, and we are turning it into like, we're, we're throwing away the gift and we're, we're replacing it with like a set of stairs or a ladder. And we now have to climb this thing to attain the blessing. It's not coming down, we are going up right? And so when we read this, we tend to read it like, blessed are you if you suffer persecution because of righteousness, because you are faithful, because you do the right thing, and then you are persecuted. And if you do this, this plus this equals blessing, okay? And yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is how you can achieve the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, but if that's the case, then Jesus isn't giving us a blessing at all. He's giving us a law. He has told us that God is on the side of those who are brave enough, whose faith is strong enough, the apostles, the strong among us. He's saying uh, God is on the side of, of, of all those who offer their lives in defense of the kingdom, those who can earn it. Uh, it means that we are striving to be heroic. That's what we're striving for. And that your ultimate goal is to be strong enough to withstand threats of evil and violence against you. Essentially, what we are saying is that God blesses the super Christians. That's what we are saying. They are the ones uh, who God is with. It is them. It is not you. If you are afraid and if you are scattered, God is not with you. And of course, of course, it is true that God is with them. Of course, God is with them. He is with them. Their reward is great. And, and they really have been blessed with great faith. And it does, in fact, bring purpose and meaning and joy to them. But sometimes 
there is this unspoken message that if you, if you truly want to be great, then you must be brave enough. You must say the things that need to be said. You must share the posts on social media that need to be posted. You must speak boldly all the time. Um, that you must always resist temptation and resort to, to resort to, um, to run away or violence or, or any other reaction in the face of great suffering. You must just stand stoically. Um, and you must stand in the presence of very, very powerful people and tell them to their face, put your finger in their face and say, and, and speak to them about their injustices to their face. And if you can't do this, then you are not a good Christian. You're in fact a failure and God is not with you. And while all of these things do need to be done, we do need to speak truth to people who are powerful. We do need to say the things that need to be said. But while all these things need to be done, we are sometimes in danger of making another law that people just can't fulfill. They can't do it because they're scared, because they're carrying psychological baggage from abuse, because it would wreck their family and they're doing everything they can to keep it together. Maybe because they have kids and they're afraid. Maybe they just don't know how. Maybe they're not educated enough. Maybe they just aren't an outspoken person. Maybe they just aren't. And if you are, blessed are you. But you know what? Jesus isn't excluding them from a blessing by saying this. Um, oftentimes, we don't feel like much of a warrior. Oftentimes, we're just quite honestly scared. Um, sometimes, what Jesus meant as an encouragement to a group of people who needed to be encouraged, the followers of Jesus will come along and turn that into a law. And the religious leader on your right, the, the religious, strong, powerful religious leaders on your right are declaring all kinds of laws that you can't live up to. But also now your religious leaders on your left are also declaring all kinds of laws that you can't live up to. But each side is telling you, you have to live up to this. And only then will you be blessed. Not only from God, but from us. We will not bless you. This is not Christ-like. It is not. This blessing, these words of Jesus were intended to speak to people who are suffering under the weight of those um, that had power to silence them. Okay? with the power to wipe their existence off the face of the earth uh, until they are weak and forgotten as if they were never born and they were being persecuted. And in that day, there was this constant habit of linking poverty and sadness and misery and suffering and persecution to God's anger with you because of your inability to spiritually perform on a higher level. That is what was happening back then. Everyone knew God was with the elite. Everyone knew God was with the powerful and the rich, 
that God had blessed them. My wife talks about this family she knew when she was a kid. They would carpool and she would ride in their car. And it was this super rich family. And there was these little girls that would get in the car and she'd be like, wow, you guys are rich. She'd look around at their car. You guys are rich. And she said, we're not rich. We're just blessed. As if, as if uh, riches and wealth constituted God's blessing. Oftentimes they can actually constitute God's curse on you. We don't want to hear about that though. In these words of Jesus, um, what we should be hearing is, I am with you. I see you. You who are being persecuted, you who are poor in spirit, you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I am with you. This is about any time you follow Jesus and it costs you something. Okay, that's what this is about. It's about when you lose something because you were trying to care for others. You may have noticed the constant temptations around you from the people, from the, the Christians around you, the more spiritual, perhaps, Christians around you who are telling you, well, you guys should be getting back together and meeting as a church, not forsaking, or we're going to rip the Bible out of its context, right? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together um, and telling you how bad of a Christian you are and how bad of a church you are for not gathering, Okay. That is the opposite of Christ, of Christ's likeness. That is somebody creating a new law. That is somebody covering you with shame for not living up to some ideal that they have and not you. Perhaps you feel that the time is not right. Perhaps you feel um, that this is an act of love. Perhaps you feel, perhaps you're scared. You are scared for you. And perhaps you sadly, like silently to yourself, you're admitting to yourself, I, I'm just worried about me and my family. You know what? Jesus looks at you and he says, blessed are you when you are scared. Blessed are you when other people are telling you that you're not as strong as them. Blessed are you too. They are declaring God's blessing upon themselves. And I am here to remind you that even though there is no shortage of people blessing themselves for their great, strong, powerful deeds, blessed are you too. You're trying to do the right thing. And maybe it's costing you. Maybe it's costing you a lot. Maybe doing the right thing in this time costs you dearly, but no one is praising you. No one is recognizing you. And you aren't being exalted for being a great Christian. Meanwhile, somebody else is. You see, it's too easy. Like I said this week on the Facebook. It is too easy to turn Jesus' joyful announcements into law. This is what we're really good at. We do this all the time. Blessed are the poor in spirit becomes blessed are those who, are truly, who truly realize how terrible they are and how much they need God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness easily becomes blessed are those who desire only good things. But that is not what these verses are saying. That is us interpreting them from a grace to a law. These blessings always, when we do this, end up becoming condemnations for those of us who don't realize just how much God loves us, how much grace and love God has for us. These blessings, if read wrong and proclaimed wrong, end up becoming condemnations for those of us who struggle with addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, those whose history bears an inability to overcome temptation. These things become a curse to them condemnation. And the Beatitudes 
end up becoming all those who see it, all those who get it, all those who are with it. God is with you. But you see, the world already thinks that way. But what Jesus is doing is making something totally different. The Beatitudes are actually the counterintuitive announcement that God blesses all people who actually aren't even strong enough to earn that blessing. The Beatitudes are for the JV team, the B squad, the dull knives on the drawer, the underprivileged, the disadvantaged. That's who the Beatitudes are talking to. The peasants on the side of the hill who have nothing and who are poor and who couldn't even afford to bring their lunch. The words of Jesus, the words coming from his mouth, are that it is not only the good ones that are blessed, as the world has told you, but also that the failures, um, the ones who can't live up to it, are also blessed by God as well. You and I. It rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. Sometimes we use even that phrase negatively. Well, it rains on the just and the unjust. You hear, you hear privileged people say that in a way that's like rain is bad. Well, bad things happen to them, bad things happen to us. It rains on the just and the unjust. In the first century, rain was very necessary. It was a good thing. And God's blessing didn't just fall on the crops. It also fell on the road. It also fell on the hovels of the poor who caught that water to drink it, not just for the plants to feed the wealthy. It rains on the just and the unjust. The big message here is simple. In your unworthiness, God stands with you. God is faithful to you. God is in your story. He is not just in the story of the martyrs of the early church. He is not just in the story of the apostles. Luke is sure to point this out to us. As they went along, they were planting churches. As they ran for their lives, God is using them as well. God is not just in the other stories. God is in your story, in your fear. We already know that the strong and happy and polished and steadfast believers, we already know God is with them. And Jesus came to remind you that he is, just, he is not just with them, he is also with you too. Equally, no less. If Jesus is doing more of that, more of this honor, honor game thing, then he is of no use to either religious people or the average struggling people like you and I. He's not. The gospel of Jesus, the ascension of this new king, means that he is their king, but he is also your king. He is the king of all. He blesses all those under his reign, whether they are worthy of it or not. You might never be the apostle that stands strongly against the Roman centurion, like Stephen. You might always be the scared Christian church member who was running and scattered like the rest. But there is no less love. There is no less grace. You have a part to play in the kingdom that is no less useful than theirs. Pray for bravery. Pray for strength. Pray for fortitude. But most of all, be thankful that this is God's story and not yours, that God is the faithful one, not you, and that God can use the unfaithful. Our unrighteousness, our unfaithfulness reveals God's righteousness, God's faithfulness. In the end, what our history, what the history of the church shows us, and what the history of the early Christians shows us, is that it isn't just the bold that God uses and talks about and remembers. God scatters people sometimes so that God can use them somewhere else. The scattered ones plant the churches as they run. They love their enemies through their fear. I remember, uh, actually, I don't remember who said it. It may have been Brene Brown, um, but someone once 
she's doing this interview and someone raises this question and they say, they say, Hey, uh, there's this thing I know I need to do, but I'm too scared to do it. I'm just terrified to do it. She goes, that's okay. Do it scared. It's okay. It's okay to be scared. Sometimes we can try to do it scared. We can do our best while we're on the run to do the work of God where we're at. And there's grace for you. And here's, and here's the thing. Here's what makes all this so useful and so beautiful. Okay. Are you ready? Are you ready? We're going to wrap it up. Ephesians chapter one, verse nine through 10. Turn there with me and read this. It says this, uh, it's it, what's going on here is that Paul is, is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And he says that God purposed in Christ. Okay. He says God purposed in Christ for something. And he says that when the times reach their fulfillment, God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay. So he makes the statement that the purposes of God through Christ is to bring everything together. The word there, the Greek word there means to sum up everything together, to retell, to recapitulate everything. Okay. In other words, everything that has happened will be gathered up, ordered, and retold um, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. If that sounds confusing to you, here's what it's saying. Let me use an illustration. Do you know how many abysmal failures in my life I now repurpose as hilarious party stories? Or, or uh, I retell them as the most important things that ever could have happened to me. How many horrible things that I went through that I never want to go through again. But I tell these stories as if they were important. Either for comic relief or as life lessons that benefited not just me, but the people around me. I have stories that I now retell either out of joy or to inspire other people that in the moment that they were happening seemed useless and purposeless and seemed like abysmal failures that I wish would be erased from my life and from my memory. But these are the things that actually made me who I am. Paul believes that even your failures one day will be given context. This event, this event, that we are going through and all the decisions being made in our, in our own hearts and minds, in our family, in our community, all the decisions being made by our government authorities and around the world, everything that is happening will be given context and will be summed up and retold as part of the victory of God in this world through Christ. It will have, it will have its moment where we will see it and be like, Oh, okay. That's what brought about this. And that's what brought about this. That is one of the thousands of ways that God is transforming our suffering. Yes, we suffer. But sometimes on the other side of it, we gain context and, and meaning. And we can see that we weren't failing. We were being broken and poured out for healing and for salvation. All right, are you with me? Why don't we take communion? Grab your elements of, of communion. We have two elements. We have, we have bread, the body of Christ, um, 
broken for you. We have wine, the blood of Christ, poured out for you. This seemingly senseless act of a perfectly good man, loving the peasants, teaching the people, um, bringing hope to the world, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, and being tortured and suffered and dying on a cross. This seemingly useless act of violence turns out to be the thing that gathers communities together for 2,000 years at least afterwards. And I believe for the rest of time, this thing, this act of suffering became an act of being broken and being poured out for healing and for salvation. I pray that in our suffering, in our failures, that we would learn to see things through the lens of the Eucharist. It is not always, like, how do I best say this? The evil suffering can become the good gift. You, charis. You is the word for good, charis is the word for gift. The evil suffering can become the good gift. And so, brothers and sisters, body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you for your healing, for your salvation. Not just for you, but for the world around you. We do this in remembrance of Christ. Now, um, we have a new collect prayer this week written by our prayer team. I would like to pray with you now. It'll be on your screen here. Pray this with me. God, who is present with us, who has promised to never leave us, never forsake us, be with us in our time of sorrow. May you transform our suffering, forming us to the life of Christ. Teach us to value the gift of life by loving others well, without expectation or demands. May we transform their darkness into light by pouring out our lives for theirs. Let us be a living testimony of your grace, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. So with that, um, I will be praying for you this week. Pray for me and the elders and the house church leaders and all of us as well. Feel free to reach out if you find yourself in need, if there's something you need to talk about, if there's questions you have. Take care of each other and reach out to each other. Grace and peace, Watermark community. One day, we will worship together again. Until then, we wait and we love. Grace and peace.